0: Good morning, it's Sunday, July 5th. I'm Larry Castle and this is Ken Brown. Thanks for joining us for another episode of That's a Good Question. So, in our Church Matters blog, uh, recently you wrote uh, about the unpredictability of the Supreme Court, you know, things like abortion and uh, some of the the decisions that uh, conservatives have really anticipated, uh, and yet been disappointed again and again. It's important that we understand how the Supreme Court works, and uh, so we wanted to discuss that today, maybe this episode, possibly two episodes. And just like we did in our previous topics, it's probably good if we get a little historical background about uh, what is the Supreme Court designed to be, how does it operate. So let's talk about that to start off today.
1: Well, this is a timely topic because uh, the Supreme Court is ending its 2019-2020 term here very shortly. The Constitution specifies that the term for the Supreme Court annually will begin on the first Monday of October, and then it typically ends on the last day of June, on June the 30th. But here we are into July already. And they still have some decisions that still need to be released. They were set back a bit in their timeline this year because of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So they lost some days. So it's going to go another several days, maybe a few more weeks uh, before they're completely, completely finished. But the Supreme Court uh, is defined in the, the Constitution as the, uh, as the final court of appeal uh, in our land. Uh, the Constitution has... Three major sections. It has Article One, Article Two, Article Three, and they deal with the legislative branch, Congress. They deal with the executive branch, the President, and the judicial branch, and that is the courts. And Articles One, Two, and Three, in that order: legislative, executive, and judicial uh, branches. The Supreme Court is, as I said, the final court of appeal. And it's the highest, that's because it's the highest court in the land. And it has under it two other levels of federal courts. You have a district court level. That's where trials uh, begin at the district court level. And then either party, after the decisions rendered by a district court, can appeal it to the next level. And that's the circuit court of appeals. And then after that decision is rendered, then either party can appeal to the Supreme Court.
0: All right. So summing that up, we've got the legislative branch, which is Congress. They write the laws. Then you've got the executive branch, that's the president, executes the laws. And then judicial, which interprets the law when there's dispute about what the law exactly means. So is that right? Yes, exactly. So what is to stop, say, um, you know, when you hear people talk about as if this could easily happen. You know, what if the president doesn't like a judge and he just mm-hmm. wants to fire him? Yeah. Can he just say you're fired?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it is a legitimate question and an important one and one that was thought about by, thankfully, by uh, the framers of our Constitution. And the genius of our Constitution is really that it uh, creates a structure that keeps something like that from happening. The structure of our system, as defined in the Constitution, uh, is designed to ensure that none of the branches becomes too powerful. Uh, You may remember, some of you listening may be familiar with the Federalist Papers, and the Federalist Papers were a series of essays by some of our founding fathers during the time of the Constitutional Convention, and uh, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay wrote back and forth to each other in a series of articles that became the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. And in Federalist Number 51, Essay Number 51, uh, James Madison famously said that if men were angels then governments <laughs> would not be required. Now in saying that he's pointing out, as I'm going to read in just a moment, he's pointing out that part of the reason that we need to structure things in the way that we're talking about, that they were talking about at the time, is because men are not angels Mm -hmm. and therefore they need to be kept in in check. And so he, he said this, he said the great security against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachments of the others. The provision for defense must In this, as in all other cases, be made commensurate to the danger of attack. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? (laughs) And then he says, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And then he says this, if angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. So notice how he's saying that. There need to be controls, restraints upon those governed, but also on the ones doing the the governing. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the people is, no doubt, the primary control on the government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions." And those auxiliary precautions are the checks that they built into the structure of the Constitution. So they create this this structure, a system that not only had separation of powers, separate branches, The legislative separated from the executive and the judicial separated from the other two and each of them separate from each other, but it also included in their interaction with one another a series of what we call checks and and balances. Each has checks on its power and each has powers that balance it with the other two. And the reason that I think it's safe for us to say that the system that the Founding Fathers bequeathed to us is really the best system in the history of mankind uh given by by mere mortals the reason that's the case is because the main thing they got right was human nature hmm. they understood human nature and they devised a system then to on the one hand allow humanity to flourish in freedom but on the other hand put appropriate restraints on the uh lesser uh uh the the angels of our lesser selves that might, uh, <laughs> that might express themselves either by the governing or by the governed.
0: Yeah. That's uh, the, the right balance. That, that really is mm. an ingenious system. You know, we're heading into the 4th of July weekend, and mm. as, we, as we think about and are thankful for uh, the country in which God has blessed us to live, that is really something to be grateful for, that uh, those who founded this yes. co- country... Um, had a view, a proper view of human nature that was informed really by biblical truth. Mm. It's not not that everybody who founded our country was a Christian, and certainly not everything they did reflected Christian values. We've had a couple episodes previously on slavery Mm -hmm. and that glaring inconsistency in our nation's founding. But uh, they saw the need to have these separate yet equal branches. And um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. How did they do that? How do they keep one of these branches from becoming more powerful than the other?
1: Well, the checks and balances that are uh, provided in our Constitution are intricate. They're also uh, quite amazing. So let me just uh, go through each of the branches and just quickly describe how each of them has powers, legitimate powers but also has checks upon those those powers. Okay. So in the case of Congress, Congress uh, makes the laws. But we have a bicameral legislature it's called. We have two houses of Congress. So we have the houses, House of Representatives and we have, we have the Senate. And the, the framers were concerned about, you know, we've got uh, different states uh, and eventually those will become more states that are admitted to to the country. And the more populous states, if you only have people represented by population, then the more populous states will become more powerful. Mm -hmm. So they decided to have two houses of of Congress, one based upon population. And so you have a state like Michigan, and our population, I think we have 15, I believe we have 15 representatives in the House of Representatives in Washington. You get a state like uh, California, and they have something like thirty-five because of their population. Right. Maybe even maybe even forty. So one house of Congress is based upon population. Then you got the other house, the Senate, and it's completely equal. Mm-hmm. So you have a state like uh, Wyoming. Wyoming has one representative in the House of Representatives. One. Because even though it's a large state land-wise, it's very small in terms of population. So they only have one representative in in Congress. But they have two senators, just like California does, or just like like Michigan does. And so uh, they set that up uh, so that it would restrain the power of the states, but it also restrains the power of the Congress itself. uh, Because you don't have just one House of Congress that is by population and is, and is thereby governed primarily by the passions of the citizenry, mm-hmm. primarily whatever's going on at the, at the time. Yeah. Uh, they baked in to their terms of office that in the House of Representatives would only be two years, mm-hmm. two-year term. Now, if that's all you had, it was a two-year term from, uh, for Congress people across, then whatever was hot in the news, whatever people were pushing, that could easily become the laws of the land. But they put a, a check even within mm. the legislative branch on that with the, with the Senate yeah. because the Senate is a more deliberative body. It's able to be more deliberative because each of the senators is there for six years. So they don't have to be quite as worried about what people are concerned about this year. Mm-hmm. or next year. Now they all get worried in year 5 or 6 <laughs> of their 6-year term, that's for sure. Yeah. But that gives them a lot of time and and each senator is equal with the other senators. And so each of them gets to say their say their piece as well. And without both houses agreeing upon a piece of legislation, it doesn't uh, it doesn't become law. So you have the Congress, it has some restraints even internally within its own branch. But it also is able to restrain, for example, any encroachments by the executive branch, the Mm -hmm. the president, because laws have to start in the House, Mm -hmm. and then they are ratified in the Senate, but they also have to be signed into law by the president. So that's a way that the president could say, I don't like your law. I'm not going to sign it. Mm -hmm. But But then the Congress... Can veto can can override his veto. Mm-hmm. So if he says I'm not going to sign it, that's called a veto. Mm-hmm. But if he vetoes a piece of legislation, they can vote. They have to have a super majority in order to do this. But they can vote to override his his veto. So he can't uh, override uh, Congress just at uh, just uh, at his whim. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He would have to have the support of the country in order to in order to do that then you take the president the president is to implement the laws he's to carry out the laws if he doesn't like a law and he refuses to implement that law congress can retaliate to that they can say we're not going to fund your agencies mm-hmm. you know i mean technically they could say we're not going to fund the white house we're not going to fun- fund <laughs> the function of the white house because according to the constitution the congress has the sole quote power of the purse Mm -hmm. and so all of the money that flows out of our government for anything all has to be appropriated by by the congress here's another example you have the president he's the commander-in-chief of the armed forces according to the constitution but again if he goes off on wild adventures that the congress that the people through their representatives in congress Mm -hmm. do not approve of they can cut off funding for, for that. But as I said he can also veto veto their laws. And then you have the judicial judicial branch. Uh, they're appointed by the president and they have to be confirmed by the Senate. So here for uh, the personnel in a particular branch, the judicial, you have the involvement of both of the other branches. You mm-hmm. have the appointment mm-hmm. by the executive and you have the approval by one of the houses of the legislative branch. Now, if you had it such that a president simply uh, appointed these judges and the president could get rid of a judge that he doesn't like, right. if that were the case, then these judges would in all likelihood end up being beholden to the president that, that um, nominated them. But that hasn't been the case historically, and it hasn't been because of the genius of our framers. They baked right into the Constitution a couple of things that keeps that... Effort- Keep that from happening. One of those is that all of these federal judges, all of them, have lifetime tenure. Hmm. They are there until they die or until they retire. The other way that they could be removed, and this has been done on occasion but but not very much, is they can be impeached, but that would have to go through Congress uh, in order for for that to happen. Uh, And it's happened very rarely. So they have lifetime tenure. Mm -hmm. So that's one. So they don't have to worry about, uh, can the president get rid of me? Uh, they're in there for life once they are confirmed by the by the Senate. The other thing that the Constitution does is it says, get this, that their pay can never be decreased after they're in office hmm. because that would be a way that you could bend judges to your mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. If you're Congress, you could say you have the power of the purse. You could say, look, we're only going to pay you 10 bucks a week until you get start getting this right, mm-hmm. uh, but they can't do that constitutionally they cannot do that. So it either stays the same or, or it uh, goes up. In the case of uh, judges, checks upon Congress, those are checks upon um, the judicial branch. That's another check on Congress that they can't decrease their salary. But another one is that they can declare acts of Congress, laws passed by Congress. They can declare those, the judges can unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. So they have the power of what's called judicial review and they've done that over 180 times in our, in our history.
0: So this, this sounds by definition, by design I should say, intended to be adversarial. Sometimes mm. we bemoan the yeah. adversarial interactions right. and sometimes justifiably so because of the manner in which yeah. it's done. Yeah. But the founders of our country thought this is a good thing that you have right. uh, sometimes competing interests vying to achieve balance. Exactly. Very, yep. That's that's great. Yep. So um, you said that Supreme Court uh, hears cases that are appealed to mm-hmm. from lower courts, mm-hmm. but they don't hear every case. Right. So how do they decide what they're going to hear, yeah. and what they're not?
1: Well, the federal court system, as I mentioned earlier, has these three levels. So you have the you know, federal district court. That's where the cases start. That's where a trial takes place. Decision is made by a jury, and then either side can appeal that to the next level the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. And then after that decision, either side can appeal that to the final level and that is the Supreme Court. But the chances of getting your case heard by the Supreme Court are very slim. Uh, The Supreme Court gets about 7,000 petitions uh-huh. to hear a case every year, 7,000. They hear about 70 or 80. Hmm. So they hear about 10% of the cases that are, excuse me, less than 10%, 1% mm-hmm. of the cases that are uh, presented to them. And so your, your chances of being heard by the Supreme Court are slim, so how do they decide which cases that they're going to accept? Well, they decide uh, to take cases where lower courts have disagreed Hmm. on something, so a decision needs to be made, they think, for the sake of the the country. They also tend to take cases that have national significance, and then thirdly, they tend to take cases where they believe a precedent is is required for Hmm. cases, cases going forward. Now, Most of the cases that they take are frankly pretty boring and arcane as they're dealing with some obscure application of the, the Constitution to a, particular, to a particular matter. But some of them affect moral issues, hmm. like what, what is marriage and whether or not uh, a person in the womb is entitled to the protection of, of the law. And so that's the kinds of cases they take, and some of those have these uh, momentous uh, matters that are wrapped up in them that the Supreme Court gets involved with. Now, the mechanics of how it goes are that each side goes before the Supreme Court. They file briefs with the court, voluminous documents. Uh, trying to bolster uh, their position. And the Supreme Court receives those, and they do most of their work behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of us, most people couldn't identify a Supreme Court justice if they saw a picture of them. <laughs> They're not out in the public all that much. They're doing most of their work in their chambers. They have law clerks that they hire every year that help them. And they just plow through a lot of a lot of paperwork. Um they do meet to hear what are called oral arguments then in those cases after the briefs have been submitted all the documents they've had a chance to read them and go through them then they schedule a time usually only an hour sometimes more but usually only an hour to hear what they call oral arguments and so each attorney the attorneys for each side get a half hour each to present their case and if you've ever heard just even an excerpt of oral argument at the supreme court it's an (laughs) amazing thing uh, you feel sorry for the attorneys because these attorneys are up there and they're trying to make their case, and literally sometimes they will get a single sentence out of their mouth, and the first question from a justice comes, and then another justice. Mm-hmm. And how these attorneys keep track of what it is they're trying to get across uh, is is amazing. And some of them do an, an an amazing job. Some less so, but some of them <laughs> do a, a great job. I would hope so to make it all the way there. <laughs> but you know these these are brilliant people that are on the court. They've read all the stuff already. Mm -hmm. and so they have some questions they want to ask and so they're not in, in this especially over the last several decades uh, it used to be different, I'm told, in history. They would kind of sit and just let the advocates make their presentation. That hasn't been the case for decades, and they just fire questions at them one after another. It's kinda, if, you, if you're a junkie on that kind of stuff like I am, then it's, uh, it's kind of neat to I hear. I haven't
0: seen much of that, but I've seen uh, doctrinal defenses. Okay. For, <laughs> <It> <laughs> yeah. sounds like yeah, that. Yeah, for my ordination,
1: that, that is that is what it's like and so that lasts about an hour and then at some point at the end of the term after they've gotten the briefs after they've heard the oral arguments um, not at the end of the term i should say right after the oral argument the entire court gets together and they vote they just have a preliminary vote how are you based on what you've read based on what you've heard how are you leaning on this case and the nine of them there are nine on the supreme court hmm. then they they give a preliminary vote they can change their vote after that right up until they write the decisions um, but. Uh, They say, the justices do, that generally what they've uh, concluded at that point usually stays in place. A a judge will flip every now and then, but it's not that often. And then they write opinions. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And uh, there's a majority opinion, so five justices constitutes a a majority, and the chief justice assigns one of the justices in the majority to write what's called the majority opinion. Now those that are in the majority, so say you have a 5-4 decision uh, and one of them is writing the majority opinion, the other four in the majority can still write their own opinions. Mm -hmm. They call it a concurring opinion and the reason they do that is they agree with the outcome, thus they're in the majority, Mm -hmm. but they might want to make a point about the reasoning that got them to the outcome. And they might want to make sure that's in writing, then on the other side the four who are in dissent can all write separate dissenting opinions or someone can write a dissenting opinion and then another justice or two or three can join in on that decision. So those are the written decisions then that are handed down, they've been handed down over the last few weeks and we're going to have a few more over the next few days and weeks.
0: Got it. So, um, sounds really tedious. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But you enjoy watching it nevertheless, right? That's pretty sick. All right. That's good enough. (laughs) Uh, so, you know, it's it's it actually made me think of Have you ever watched any of the CSI shows? So they're doing science, or so like testing okay. a chemical, okay. but there's music and lights. It's really oh, exciting oh, when you watch okay. it on TV. Oh. But in real life, it's not. <laughs> it's a little beaker and a, you know a whirring sound, and that's it. And you're reading an article. like So. Uh, this sounds tedious like that, but why is it so mm. controversial? And you know, why is it yeah. such a big deal when a new justice is nominated? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's excellent. Right, because you know, the way I've described it, my, they go through all of that. Why do we care about it? And why do we hear about it in the news and all of that? Mm-hmm. You know, what it, what it has to do with is it has to do with the nature of the cases that uh, they're hearing and also the interpretive method Hmm. that each of the justices is bringing to that case and how they believe the Constitution or a statute uh, applies. And uh, and with regard then to the nature of the cases, the nature of the cases that the, the court has been hearing over the last decades have become more and more controversial in part because What used to be the Christian consensus in the country Mm. has been slowly eroding. And that goes back to the early 60s. In uh, the early 60s, you had two back-to-back in 1962, 1963, two decisions, one about prayer in schools, the other about Bible reading in, in schools. And both of those activities were struck down as an unconstitutional, an impermissible breach of the separation of church and state mm-hmm. based on the First Amendment to the Constitution. That was a, that was a, a shock to uh, the system. Uh, I have friends to this day in their 70s and their 80s who talk about how we used to have prayer, we used to have Bible reading when they were, in, when they were kids in school. Mm-hmm. And so that was a way of life and that got overturned by, by, the, Supreme, by the Supreme Court. And so that sent shockwaves. And then you you move forward a bit into 1973 and there's the infamous January 22nd, 73 Roe versus Wade Mm -hmm. decision uh, that made abortion then a constitutional right. Abortion on demand, a constitutional right. And so that created shockwaves for many people. And then you move forward into 1992. There was a case before the Supreme Court, again, on the issue of abortion. By this time, it was thought that you had a majority of justices who were conservative and might vote, Mm -hmm. in this case, to overturn the 19 years earlier Mm -hmm. uh, Roe v. Wade case. But sure enough, in a 5-4 case, 5-4 decision, that went the other way, and Roe v. Wade remained the, the law of the land. And then in 2015, just five years ago, you had the uh, decision to uh, make as a constitutional right uh, uh, gay marriage. And so there are many others that could be added to that but uh, Bible reading, prayer, abortion, gay marriage, all of those are things that have happened in the last several decades that have made the Supreme Court a focal point of, of controversy. And then there's the issue of the method that each of the justices takes and mm-hmm. how they interpret. Mm-hmm. How do you arrive at that uh, decision that the um, the Constitution requires that abortion on demand be a right for for every woman in, in the country? So that means if uh, if you're going to if you're going to look to have judges on the Supreme Court who take an approach to the Constitution that uh, reads it in its context, in its original context, and then applies it to current circumstances. If you're Mm -hmm. gonna try to do that, then you as a president, as a Senate confirming, remember that's how it goes, the president and then the Senate, then the president is gonna have to be very careful about who he chooses, the Senate is gonna be careful about who they confirm, and now that's what brings together the controversy. Mm -hmm. because people are paying attention to it more now. Who is this person that's being nominated? Mm -hmm. What kind of uh, interpretive approach do they take to the Constitution? What kinds of decisions then is that likely to yield? And so the president vets these people now Mm -hmm. very carefully in ways that they didn't take all the time decades ago that they do now, but now they take months in order to vet a particular person and to try to read the tea leaves as to which way they'll Mm -hmm. go, and then it goes to the Senate. And then people get to express their opinion. The country gets to express its opinion. And it becomes, in some cases, the spectacles that we've mm-hmm. seen. We saw a spectacle in 1989 when Clarence, uh, excuse me, 1991 when Clarence Thomas was, um, was nominated to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And then just two years ago with the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. But that's why. It's because of the nature of the cases and it's because of now the, the importance placed upon the Interpretive approach that each of the judges
0: takes. Yeah, so it, you're, just to be clear, you're saying it hasn't always been as right. controversial as our country is built of more, or there's more diversity in worldview and, world view mm-hmm. and right. more people who would like to reinterpret what was written. Yeah, that's right. Okay. No, it
1: hasn't always been that way. Uh, now that um, throughout the history of our country, the, which uh, coincides with the history of the Supreme Court, uh, the court has made what are called landmark decisions sometimes those are called landmark decisions because they were so important that uh, they are also sometimes controversial just uh, one example of that is the 1954 brown versus board of education decision hmm. and that struck down the old standard uh, it actually overturned uh, a case from 1896plessy versus ferguson that said separate but equal Mm -hmm. Accommodations were legal and uh, the Brown decision in 54 said separate but equal is inherently unequal. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: that required then the integration of schools. They could no longer and other public uh, accommodations. But that was a very controversial decision. So there have been controversial decisions. But it's really been since the 60s that this Christian consensus has been challenged and it's been increasingly uh, overturned. So judges have become more important than they used to be and that whole nomination confirmation process has become more important than it used to be. So let me give some quick history about you know the way the court has been shaped since this started to happen. In the 60's you had a court called it was called the Warren Court and so-called because the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at the time was uh, Earl Warren and that uh, court had a number of liberal justices on it, and they made a number of liberal uh, decisions at the time, not just on moral issues but on uh, criminal justice issues and, and and so forth. So Americans started to get a lot more interested in the, the Supreme Court when that started to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember seeing, I haven't seen one of these for many years, maybe some of you watching uh, have seen these. Uh, there were signs that people would have it on their in their yards that said, impeach Earl Warren, Hmm. impeach Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, because there were so many of these controversial and almost entirely liberal uh, decisions. Now, by the time you come to 1973 and the abortion decision, uh, Richard Nixon was the president. He was elected in 68. He was reelected again in 72. When that decision came down, Richard Nixon, a Republican, was the president. He had nominated, get this, in five and a half years, he was able to nominate four of the nine Supreme Court justices, four of them. You had a new Chief Justice, Warren Burger, and it was thought that this was a more conservative court. Well, when the, the abortion decision came down, guess what the vote was? Seven to two, hmm. seven to two uh, to make abortion a constitutionally protected Right. But the truth is, Nixon really didn't care about that that much. Um, he didn't vet. At that time, this still had not gotten to the fever pitch that it's gotten now, but it was really after that decision that folks really started to, to pay attention and to really look at and try to vet how a judge um, would go about interpreting the, the Constitution. And so, let, let me just give you an example of why that uh, became such a hot issue. I mean, there's the obvious Uh, fact that abortion became the law of the land, and that was contrary to the views of most Americans. In 1973, when that decision was handed down, there were laws in all 50 states that regulated abortion, either outlawed it entirely or at least regulated it in some way, and all of those were were shot down. So that's going to make it controversial no matter what. But the other thing that made it controversial was the reasoning that went into it. And this is where the whole, how do you interpret the Constitution mm-hmm. piece mm-hmm. comes in. Uh, Harry Blackman wrote the majority opinion for, um, for the court in 1973. He had been appointed to the court by, by Richard Nixon. But he wrote the majority opinion. And he relied upon a case from just a few years earlier uh, called Griswold uh, versus Connecticut. And it was about, it was about contraception. But in both cases, Griswold and Roe, both of them uh, said that the Constitution contains something called the right to privacy. Mm -hmm. The right to privacy. Now, to our viewers, if you've never read the Constitution, I'd encourage you to do that. It's not as long and intimidating as you might think, uh, and you could go through it fairly quickly. And if you do that, if you go through it, including the amendments, the changes that have been made over the years... It uh, won't take you very long at all. And you will search in vain as you read through it for the right to privacy.
0: In case in case you don't believe him, <laughs> that it's not long, I was surprised years ago as I, there was actually an app and I downloaded it and took a look at it. There was a question somebody and I were talking about. And I was shocked. I mean, you look at the laws we make now and they're, I mean, a single law is books and books. Yes, yeah. yeah and it's really short yes. and so you could download yes. it and read it
1: exactly and i encourage you to do that and and if you do and you did it you're going to look for the right to privacy yeah. and you don't find it now it doesn't mean americans don't have a right to privacy but you really do need to be careful when you say there is a constitutional right to anything that is not actually given and then when you it was not explicitly given and then when you cite the support for that as these cases did, Griswold and Roe, this is what they said. They said that they, the right to privacy, this I'm quoting now. <laughs> the right to privacy is derived from penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. So it's a good thing we're in the resource center. Is there a dictionary here? <laughs> <Exactly>. Can I <laughs> and you look and you have to. You look yeah. in the dictionary and you look under penumbra, and it means shadow. Shadow. Now, the right to privacy, then, is derived from shadows that emanate from, derived from, the First Amendment. That's what the court's saying. Mm -hmm. The right to privacy that gives a right to abortion is derived from shadows that derive from the, the First Amendment. Now, here's the First Amendment. Here's the entire First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the entire first amendment. Hmm. And out of that, out of the first amendment said the court emanates by shadows from that. So they're basically saying we're reading between the lines. That's uh, they're the reading between the lines a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Reading between the lines pretty heavily. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Gap gap theory, haven't we? (laughs) (laughs) So now you you have a right, a constitutional right, based upon that. That's the way you're interpreting. Now, putting aside, you know, we don't know who all's viewing. Maybe we have some folks who are viewing right now who say, you know, I think a woman should have a a right to choose. I'm not even arguing that right now. Hmm. We're not even talking about whether that's a correct position or not. Right now we're just talking about the the way you interpret the document in order to get to that Mm -hmm. and and that became and still is the great concern Uh, how do you get from here to there Mm. and the reading between the lines as you say uh, has become a problem so since that time conservatives have become very very keen on ensuring that the judges who are appointed take an interpretive approach that will not find rights in the
0: Constitution like
1: Roe v. Wade did.
0: Mm-hmm. So just thinking about the way you described that, um, I mean, really, what we're what we're observing, I think here is a way to maybe you think this should be a right. Mm-hmm. Maybe we conclude as a group we the mm-hmm. consensus is it should be a right. the the correct way to go about that would be add another amendment or something like that in the Constitution. Yeah. and that's not what's being done here. So what you're saying right. is, This philosophy or the the approach to interpreting interpreting the the Constitution is quite Mm -hmm. apart from what you think about this particular issue. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about what's your opinion on abortion. That's right. We're saying um, what is the correct way to go about understanding what the Constitution actually says now. That's
1: right. That's right. And so. When a president, any president, Democrat or Republican president, if they have the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice, now how would they have the opportunity to do that? Because one of the nine either passed away or retired. Mm -hmm. And so there's an opening. And if there's an opening, now whoever's president at the time has the opportunity to nominate a replacement. If a president gets that opportunity, uh, going back into my adult lifetime, going back to Reagan and Bush one and um, Clinton, and uh, Bush II, and Obama, and now President Trump, with all of those those presidents, uh, they've all had uh, the opportunity to appoint at least one Supreme Court justice. I don't know of a single president who has asked any nominee, how would you vote on this particular mm-hmm. issue? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not doing that. What they are trying to find out is what's your approach to interpretation. Yeah. and And sure, if they are comfortable with your approach to interpretation then you're going to be more or less likely to come out on decisions the way they might want. Uh, Mm -hmm. I grant that Mm -hmm. and so they are trying to again read the tea leaves on that. But no, it's not what is your position on a particular issue. Judges frankly would violate their code of ethics if they gave their position on a particular issue. If if they had already stated what their position Mm -hmm. on issues was, then someone comes before the court uh about on that issue. Now they have reason to believe they're not going to get
0: a fair shake from yeah, they, this judge. They, they've they've dis- already s- adjudicated the matter before they've heard before it. Before
1: they've heard it, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's about interpretation. So what has happened is since uh 1980, Ronald Reagan became the president. And uh as a conservative president, uh he and the conservative movement said we're gonna start taking this really seriously. 1982 an organization started called the Federalist Society, the Federalist Society. That uh, just started as a fledgling group, it has now grown to a very large and very influential group of conservative lawyers and, and jurists. And they exist to promote a way of interpreting the Constitution that confines you to the text as it was originally written, or the original understanding of the of the text when it was originally written. I'll talk about the nuance on that probably probably next time. Mm-hmm. But it's a form uh, they're committed to a form of what's called originalism, mm-hmm. so that then you don't have the, a right to privacy that becomes a right to abortion mm-hmm. by if you use that if you use that method of interpretation. And uh, just as an example of how uh, prominent that group has become, uh, Donald Trump said during the 2016 campaign, he said, uh, if I get an opportunity to put judges on the Supreme Court, I am going to choose them from this list. And he actually published a list of 30 some judges. That list was provided by the Federalist Hmm. Society. And that actually was a a stroke of political genius on the part of his campaign, because uh, it gave uh, those who are very, those of us who are very concerned about this issue, uh, some reassurance that if you'll really do that, that that would be something de- desirable. There were real concerns about whether he would actually mm, do mm-hmm. that. But lo and behold, uh, he almost immediately had an opportunity, in, in fact immediately, had an opportunity to appoint a justice. Antonin Scalia had died uh, in 2016 before the election. Uh, Republican Senate said we are not going to take up any nomination made by Barack Obama, whether one, and and, and and Obama and, and, and those on his team and the Democrats were very upset, and understandably so, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, because he's the president, he would nominate a replacement. But the Senate has to confirm, and the Senate said, we're not going to take it up. So we're going to see who wins the election. Well, everybody still thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. Mm. And some people told Mitch McConnell, you know, you ought to, Cut your losses. You ought to take what you can get because the guy that had been nominated by Obama, a fellow named Merrick Garland, was considered a fair, fairly moderate, you know, left mm. of center, but not radically left kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So take him because if Hillary Clinton gets elected, it'll be much more, someone much more left.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But as we all know, Trump won. And so in February, uh, he's only been president for a month, he's able to nominate Neil Gorsuch, one of the people on his list of 30-some. And then uh, the following year, another one on that list, uh, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh. So he has done that. Um, there are nearly 900 judges on the federal bench. You know, there's only nine on the Supreme Court. But remember, the federal bench is the district mm-hmm. courts, and mm-hmm. it's also the circuit courts of appeal. All of them are lifetime tenure. Those get less... Uh, less press and less attention, but they're extremely important because those decisions are affecting the lives of people for a very long time, and those people are on for a lifetime as well. Wow. There are about 900 of them, and wow. President uh, Trump has, in his uh, three-and-a-half years, uh, been able to appoint and have confirmed 200 of those on nearly 900 Judges, so that's uh, that, and and some of that were on there already for life were already of a conservative bent. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what's also important about that is that these are the people generally, especially the courts of appeals, from from where judges for the Supreme Court. So if you get lots mm-hmm. of people with on the federal bench that have that interpretive philosophy, these are kind of a a
0: bench that can become mm-hmm. uh, at the big leagues. This is like the court. kind of thing that you wouldn't see uh, the effect of immediately either. This is something that is a long-term change yes. that almost has a lagging effect. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, so a very, uh, very important process, but in large part a process that takes place behind the scenes. But back to your question: Why is it so controversial? It has always been that way. Mm-hmm. It's because of the kinds of cases that uh, are being ju- adjudicated and the approach uh, toward interpretation that the judges have been taking.
0: Okay, so I think uh, we've probably, let's see, look at our time. Yeah, this is a good long one. So we just talked okay. about doing this in two parts, so yeah. we'll get to the details then of okay. what are the approaches that someone would take. And
1: and how, uh, folks, we always are looking to do this as Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. this we want to show then how this affects our witness. We want to show how this affects our advocacy. We want to be knowledgeable citizens, uh, but we want to be citizens who bring salt and light to every issue that we address. And so we are doing this for, for that reason. It's not just to brush up on our history or upon our civics. We do that in order to place in context the ministry that God has called each of us as Christians to carry out.
0: That's great. All right. Well, that's it for this week, then. Uh, Thanks for watching. Remember, if you'd like to send us a question to consider, you can text that in to nine seven zero zero zero. And then as well, there's an email address info at cbctrenton.com. And if you've not already, make sure you like our Facebook page. uh, Follow us there. And then as well, if you are watching this video on YouTube, subscribe, and you'll be able to make sure you know when we've posted a new episode. Uh, also, this is available on iTunes if you're into podcasts. You can just listen to it, put it on while you're in the car, um, while you ride your bike, while you work around your yard, <laughs> all kinds of, of good ways. If you're having trouble sleeping. you <laughs> <Yeah>, for sure. <laughs> all right, so thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.